Hey, good morning. Uh, yeah. So uh, we're starting. I'm not sure what that was, but okay. Uh, we're starting a brand new series together called Fallen, in which, guys, we're just going to spend the next five weeks uh, exposing the fact that you and I have an enemy, an enemy who is real, an enemy who is literal, an enemy who wants nothing more than to destroy your life and my life. And as we get ready to do this, my best guess is that as you and I show him, show Satan for who he is, as we take his lies and pull them out of darkness and shine light on them and say, you get that this is nothing but deception. You get that if you buy this, you will ruin yourself, that he is going to be absolutely frustrated with you and me. And I can't imagine that he will sit back and be silent. So I just think the best thing that you and I could do together in a moment like this, when you and I are saying, hey, we're getting ready to step into enemy territory and go eyeball to eyeball, is to bathe that moment in prayer. So I'm just going to ask that you and I, as we begin this series, we just stand together this morning to say, God, please, 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 let the scales fall from our eyes. Let the enemy run in fear. You win the day. Let, let's pray. Hey, dear Heavenly Father, we… We're not so naive this morning not to know that our enemy is real, and he's alive, and he hates us, and he hates you, and that as we get ready to spend the next five weeks just pulling him into the light and exposing his tactics and his deception, that he will be frustrated with us. But God, we're going there because we know we've got friends who need to hear this. We've got people in this church who need to hear this, who have spent far too much of their lives believing a lie and giving the enemy victory. And so we're going to go there, but we pray for your protection. We pray for your strength. We get that we have no power, but you have all power. So we're going to ask you to go before us as we have this discussion. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, it's interesting that up until about 150 years ago, the prevailing scientific accepted fact was a thing called spontaneous generation, which was an effort to explain why seemingly smaller uh, organisms, smaller living things came into existence. Um, so, for instance, uh, it was common knowledge, commonly accepted, that um, mice came from grain that if you happen to have a pile of grain and you happen to have a little bit of moisture there, that spontaneously grain would turn into mice. That's why they showed up, spontaneous generation. Uh, it was commonly accepted knowledge that uh, dirt and water made frogs. So every year the Nile River would overflow a little bit, the banks would become muddy, and of course frogs appeared. So it was obviously that the frogs had spontaneously generated from the water in the dirt. Matter of fact, there was actually kind of a recipe out there. If you, uh, you wanted honey, uh, you were prescribed. You would uh, take a bowl, you would kill the bowl, you would dig the carcass down so that only a portion of it was exposed, but you had to be careful to make sure that the horns stayed out and exposed. And then, within 30 days, bees would suddenly and magically appear in the carcass. You'd have honey. Spontaneous generation. Along came a guy by the name of Louis Pasteur who said, guys, 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 
No, no, no. You can't take inanimate things like grain and a little bit of moisture and, and have those things burst into life. That's not what's happening. You've, you've misunderstood the moment. And what is really happening is, is that there is a, there's a whole world of microorganisms. Uh, there, there's things that, that, that I call germs that are actually out there that, that have the ability to be transferred through the air. People can breathe and other people can get germs. Germs can get on your hands and then you can touch somebody and transfer those germs. And, and, and that's the explanation for why people get sick and for how this happens. There is an unseen world of microorganisms that actually affects the seen world that you and I live in. The response to what Louis Pasteur said was laughter. They said, how dumb do you think we are to believe that something that we cannot see, something that's invisible to the eyes, could actually affect and change things that we can handle and touch and hold? Isn't it interesting that today you and I absolutely understand and accept what Lewis Pasteur taught. Matter of fact, so much so that you and I buy this stuff by the gallons. The rub comes in your life and my life when Scripture says to you and me, there's an unseen world that affects the seen world. There is a spiritual realm that is real and active and alive, and just because you can't visualize it, just because you can't reach out and touch it, doesn't make it any the less true or real. And this spiritual realm has the capacity, has the ability to affect and change and harm and deceive in the world that you and I function in. And Scripture would say, without apology, despite the smirks, there is an enemy. He is absolutely real, and he will not be satisfied until he destroys you, till he takes your reputation and runs it in the mud, till he takes your family and causes so much heartache and so much ruin that it no longer even resembles a home. That, that until He takes your character and causes you to compromise so many times that you forget what you believe. That you get to the end of your life and look back and are filled with regret. And you say to yourself, how in the world, how, how in the world did I, did I look at something that I thought was just a pastime and didn't realize that it was actually a pathway to a habit. How in that moment did I not see that, that, that flirting with my secretary and stolen moments in hidden hotel rooms wouldn't come back to destroy? How, how was I so deceived? How was I so blind in the moment? And Scripture would say, you and I have a real enemy, and that one of the most naive and foolish things that you and I could ever do is pretend that he's not there, ignore him and hope that he goes away, 
And Scripture would say instead, no, 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 no. You better know who he is. You better know his tactics. And you better be able to pull his lies into the light so that you don't end up fooled by him. Because, 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 you ready? There is an unseen world. There is a spiritual realm which deeply, deeply affects your life. Matter of fact, Scripture uh, is so certain of this and so unapologetic of it that it just absolutely gives you an eye of history, gives us a chronicle of how this whole saga started. How did it come about that there is an enemy who wants to destroy and wound and cripple us? So grab your Bibles real quickly and go with me to the book of Ezekiel. I know some of you are going to go, whoa, 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 where is Ezekiel? So before you put your Bibles away, um, if you go to the middle of your Bible, you're probably going to find the book of Psalms, book of Proverbs. Okay? Go to the right. You're going to find books like Isaiah, Jeremiah. You'll run into this Ezekiel. Now, here's the deal. I'm just going to encourage you for the next few weeks, bring your Bibles, bring your Bibles, bring your Bibles. You're going to make, want to make sure that I'm not sitting up here like some kook. You're going to want to make sure that what we're talking about is truly scriptural, it's biblical, and it's what God said. You're going to want to look in your Bibles. Okay? So bring your Bibles with you. We're going to spend some time in the Bible. Have them handy. Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, while you're getting there, let me uh, help you with what's going to happen in this moment. The passage in Ezekiel is going to start off addressing the king of Tyre. But what you're going to realize real quickly as the conversation goes on, you're going to go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Something just happened here. I don't, I don't think God is talking to the king of Tyre anymore. Because some of the things he's saying in this conversation, some of the descriptions that he's given, there is no earthly human being who could possibly fit this description. Something just happened. And what you and I discover is, is that what God is doing in this moment is he is speaking to the be speaking past the king of Tyre to the one who is motivating him, to the one who is using him like a puppet, to the one whose plans and schemes he has fallen into. And he's talking directly to Satan. Now, some of you that are somewhat familiar with Scripture, you would recognize and know this, this happens uh, once in a while. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 16, there's an interesting moment. Uh, Jesus is with His disciples, and He begins to describe to them and says, look, uh, I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be put on a cross and, and crucified. And in that moment, Peter looks at Him and says, Jesus, no way. No way are we going to let that happen to you. That's a horrible plan. That can't possibly be what God has in mind. Never, never, never are we going to do that. And in that moment, Jesus turns to Peter and says to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. Try that sometime with your husband. <laughs> Get thee behind me, husband. But you get here. Here's what Jesus is doing in that moment. He's saying, Peter, 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 Peter. You didn't come up with that plan. You didn't, you didn't conceive this idea. The reality is the enemy is using the moment. The enemy is deceived. And so he addresses Satan. And he just says, look, I know where that answer came from. Because, you know, think about the moment. I'm not too sure Satan even understood what was going to happen on the cross. I don't think he got the moment. But the reason he wants Jesus not to go to the cross is not because he's sparing Jesus' life. He just wants Jesus to do anything that is disobedient to the plan of God. Because in that moment, he would no longer be Savior. And so Jesus looks at Peter in that moment and says, no, 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 Peter, I, I get it. I get you didn't. 
I know who came up with that answer. Get thee behind me, Satan. Ezekiel's going to do exactly the same moment. Watch and listen as we go through the passage, and you go, oh, my goodness. (laughs) This clearly stopped being the king of Tyre. (laughs) God's talking to the one behind him. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 28. Here we go. Verse 12. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You know, it's, it's interesting because we, we've got all sorts of kind of images of who Satan is and what he would look like, and, and most of them have this real dark look to them, this real, we would call satanic look. But you realize that's not how Scripture describes Satan. Matter of fact, Scripture describes Satan as an angel of light. Here it says he was per- ready? perfect in beauty. Ladies, if Satan were to make himself manifest here, if you he were to see him here, he would be literally the best-looking man you had ever seen in your life. Brad Pitt would look like a scrub, okay? <laughs> Men, if, if Satan appeared here, He'd be a man's man. There would be a charisma about him that you would be drawn to him. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. If I'm remembering the biblical account right, there, there were four people in Eden before it was sealed clutch. There was God, there was Adam, there was Eve, there was Satan. You were in the Garden of Eden. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made out of gold. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. Now, when you and I hear the word cherub, we think of these little fat baby things with little wings, and they're shooting little arrows, and people are falling in love, and someone's handing out chocolates. That's not a biblical cherub. Matter of fact, cherubim, biblically, are amongst the strongest angels in all of heaven. And as you go and do a little bit of research, you find out that Satan, Lucifer, as he was referred to before the fall, was actually the strongest, the highest elevated of all of the cherubim. Matter of fact, Scripture says that he was the covering cherub. And Scripture in describing heaven says that there was a cherub who flew over the throne of God and a cherub on the right and on the left-hand side of God's throne, probably Michael and Gabriel. And, and, and unlike the stories, Scripture says they actually had three sets of wings. They, they, with one of the sets of wings, they covered their eyes, for they were not worthy to look on the glory of God. And with one set of wings, they covered their feet, for they were not worthy to stand in the presence of God. And with one set of wings, they flew. And Lucifer was the most powerful, most beautiful, wisest one of them all. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. 
You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. And through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. And so I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to earth, and I made a spectacle of you before kings. It's not the king of Tyre we're talking to. Grab your Bibles and go with me over to the book of Isaiah. It's actually going to chronicle what happened. What was that moment? What was that sin that caused Satan, Lucifer, to turn against God? It's Isaiah chapter 14. It's going to be to the left in your Bible. Isaiah chapter 14, starting in verse 12, here's what it says. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star? A term which is used often for Lucifer. Son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, now get, get ready for this, because here's what's going to happen in the next few moments. You're going to watch Scripture chronicle that Lucifer, Satan, had a pride problem. Because five times he's going to say, I. This is what I need. This is what I want. This is what I'm going to do for myself. Here we go. Matter of fact, you have a pencil. You might just want to circle the word I. Here's what it says. You said in your heart, I, I will ascend into heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly and on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. You ready? I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the, to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you, and they ponder your fate. Is this the one? Is this the man who shook the earth and made the kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert and overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home. So, Scripture just basically unapologetically says there is a real enemy. Let, let me tell you how he became an enemy. And he's not who you think he is. It, it's, it's interesting in our culture that we, we either come from this perception that says, okay, so God may be real, but, you know, this whole Satan, that, that, that's more mythological. That, that's, you know, that, that's allegorical, right? You know, devil and hell. I mean, that's, that's, those are symbols of something, but, I mean, they're not literal, right? Or if we actually believe in a Satan, then we've got this perspective that says, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily that he's that bad a guy. He's just misguided, right? He's, he's, he's just kind of the guy who's a little bit more free-spirited, a little more fun-loving, Matter of fact, there was a news cover on uh, U.S. News um, a few years back, and uh, it looked like this. See, Satan's the guy you want to go have a barbecue with, man. Uh, it, you know, for the gals, I mean, you, know, you kind of get this perception. He, 
he's the guy mom warns you about, which kind of makes him a little bit interesting because, you know, maybe you could tame him. Guys, he's, he's John Belushi in your frat house. How many of you guys know who John Belushi is? Animal House. Okay, so you guys are pretty old. Okay, so that's good. Good for you. Who, who would that be like today? Anyone? Who, who would that be like? Aston Kutcher before he got married? Who, who would that be? All right, so you get the, you get the gist of it. He, he's kind of the guy who's a little bit reckless, a little bit wild, but man, he's sure fun to hang out with. And Scripture would say you have no idea. You have no idea. He's not your buddy. He's not the cool dude in the next dorm room. He's your enemy. Who wants nothing more than to destroy you? Matter of fact, 1 Peter chapter 5 simply says it this way. The devil is like a roaring lion roaming about looking for anybody unsuspecting, anybody ignoring, anybody naive enough to destroy, to ruin. And not because he likes you, not because he wants to hang out with you, not because he's a friend with an alternate life philosophy, because he hates your guts. And he hates your guts because he hates God's guts. And he is filled with violence and revenge. See, here's the deal. Satan knows he can't get even with God. See, he already tried this once. He already lost that fight. He's already been expelled from heaven. And he is so angry so filled with violence in his heart. But he knows he can't get even with God. So here's what he chooses. You ready? He chooses to destroy whatever God loves. And there is nothing in this world that God loves more than you. It's why if you and I give him the opportunity... He will ruin us because it is the quickest way and the clearest way to wound the heart of God, to take a follower of Christ and run them through the mud. Maybe this helps. Every once in a while I watch Judge Judy. It's hard for me to admit that. I am a Judge Judy watcher. Okay, so... uh, (laughs) It's fun sometimes just to see the, the relational train wrecks that happen in the deal. And if you watch uh, Judge Judy or any of those, you know, Judge Joe Brown or whatever, if you watch any of those shows, uh, after a while you'll come into this scenario because it happens over and over again. Uh, there's a couple who's been dating, engaged, something. And he has found someone else. She is now filled with anger. Her eyes turn red. Her head starts spinning around a few times, okay? She's going to get even with this guy. Here's the problem. He's bigger than her. He's stronger than her. So she hatches a plan. 
You ready? I will destroy what he loves. So while he's gone to work, suddenly she's in his closet getting all of his best clothes, his $200 jeans, walking them out to the front yard, laying them gently in the grass. She then goes back into the house, finds his iPhone, finds his stereo, carries them outside. She then calls some of her friends who come over and help with the big screen high-def television. She then finds flammable liquid. He comes home. There's a big pile of ashes in the front yard. Confused, he begins to walk toward the front door until he realizes the outer frame of his 52-inch Toshiba. And the smile on her face as she flicks her bick. You, you get that Satan's not messing with you because he wants to be your friend. He's, he, he's not bothering with us because he thinks God's made a mistake and he's got a better plan for our lives. He wants to destroy us. Because it's the quickest way to get vengeance. It's the most effective way to wound the heart of your and my Heavenly Father. So He takes our homes and makes us do stuff that is absolutely insane. He tells us if we don't follow what He says, we'll never be happy and we'll never be satisfied. And then he destroys. And I get, I get in the room. I get in the room. The someone's going, Lynn, I, Lynn, I think you're overplaying the moment. I think, I think you're making too much. I, I, don't, I don't even know if I can get there. I don't know if I can. A literal devil, a literal destroyer. I get it. I get that in your mind you've got answers for for why a husband trades a few moments with his secretary for a family. I, I get that you've, you've got an answer for, for why a young person sits, and despite the fact that thousands who've gone on before them have fallen prey and become absolutely enslaved to drugs, says in their heart, it'll never happen to me. And I get that your answer doesn't have anything to do with a deceiver or anything to do with a liar. I, I get it. But isn't it true? Isn't it true that even as you try to put in order all the things that you've seen in the world, there still comes the moment when some story, some happening, some occurrence that is so dark, so vile, that the only answer you can give is, that's evil. If there's not an enemy, if there's not a 
deceiver who seeks to ruin. Explain to me, Jeffrey Dahmer. There's no evil. Explain to me a man who lures young men to his home, offering them drugs and alcohol to have sex with him. Who, who then kills those young men, commits necrophilia, who takes parts of their bodies and holds them in a refrigerator, and later, as best we know, cannibalizes. If there is not evil, and an evil what? Who somehow convinced a man that that's what happiness looked like. Explain to me Darfur. Explain to me a country of people who, who in a moment sit there and say, look, we feel like we've been oppressed and we feel like we haven't gotten our fair shake. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to rise up against the people that we feel have been oppressing us. And we're going to rape and kill their women. And then we're going to cut off the hands of their children so they can never rise up against us. And somehow we are doing something positive for the world. there's not a liar and a deceiver at work. Tell me, tell me, tell me how an army major walks into a readiness center, yells out loud, all might to Allah, and then proceeds to gun down 19 soldiers and wound another 30, and believe that he is doing something positive. Explain to me a man who gets on the internet in the evening and convinces himself that he can sit and lust after other women and it won't affect the trajectory of his marriage if there's not a liar whispering in his ear. Explain to me, explain to me a society that says, the only way I'm going to be happy is if I can buy the next shiny thing the next new thing. If you and I aren't being deceived. And guys, you get you get the moment. You, you get you get that Satan knows you and I well enough and gives us enough credit for being smart enough. He's not going to come to you and say, hey, let's lure some guys back to your house. And he's not going to ask you to drink some blood or tattoo a pentagram on your arm. He, he knows you would know what was going on in them. He knows that your answer to that moment would be not, not on your life. So you get, you get that when he works, when he comes to whisper his lies to you and I, he does it much more subtly. And you, you, the interesting part is, he simply says this, how about if you do what got me into trouble in the first place? You get the moment? Remember in, remember in Isaiah when it, when it said that five times Satan simply said, I, I want this, I deserve this, I'm more important than what God desires. And all Satan really did, you remember that, that first, the fallen part, was really all Satan did in that moment is he said, look, this is the place where God belongs. This is the throne. And I'm simply going to say to God, God, look, you can't, you can't have that anymore. You can have number two. 
you just can't have the throne anymore. And that in that moment, what Satan simply did was say, this is mine. This is what I need. This is what I want. And after all, I'm the most important. He realized it was just self-worship. My plans are better than God's. My thoughts are higher than His. You realize how many times you and I have fallen into that trap? How many times Satan has come and whispered in our ears and said, you you realize God doesn't understand you? God doesn't get what you need. And what you need to say is, God, it's okay, you can have second place, but I got to take care of me. You know how to know if you're a self-worshipper or not? If I were to say to you today, you have to choose. You can choose between happiness and following God. Which would you choose? Because you get the very moment that you say, no, 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 my happiness, what's going to be good for me is more important, and I would choose that ahead of choosing God. You realize you're a self-worshipper. You realize that's satanic. It's exactly what Satan did. God, you don't understand. God, you don't get me. If I follow you, I may miss out. And, and you get at the end of the day that Satan, Satan doesn't care what you put on the... Satan's not trying to get you to put him on this throne. He just simply wants you to put something, even yourself, something besides God on the throne. which means he'll even ask you and I to consider good things. You get it's possible to put your family on the throne. Family's good. Satan doesn't care. As long as you put something here and make it more important than God, then he wins. He's gotten you to do exactly what he did. I was talking to a gentleman a couple years ago and inviting him to church, and I honestly invited him four or five times, and he kept kind of politely saying no, and finally he looked at me and he said, Lynn, look, just, you know, you can stop inviting me. He said, Sunday's our family day. I, uh, I, I go out with my kids, and we all ride quads on Sunday, and that's what we do, and after all, that's worshiping God, right? And um, God wants you to take care of your family, so God understands. You get the reason God asks you and I to come in on the first day of the week and meet and worship to Him. Because when you and I do that, what you and I are saying as you and I come to this place is every single week you and I are saying, God, there is nothing more important that I could do on the first day of my week than to first honor you. See, Satan doesn't care what you put in place of it as long as you put something where only God belongs. Some of us have put our careers there. And we said, hey, look, you know, when I finally get there, when I can finally achieve that level of success, when I finally make middle management, you know, then maybe I would serve 
around the church. Maybe I'd, you know, do some things, but certain things first. Some of us have put money there. You get there's nothing wrong with money, but Jesus just simply said you can't love this and love God at the same time. And some of us sit in this room today and we are, we are credit limited to our eyeballs. If, if God tomorrow were to say, hey, I've got an orphan I need you to take care of or I, I need you to give something to Haruma or I need you to donate to something, we couldn't do it. Because we've been too busy buying the next shiny thing that was going to make us happy. For some of us that are single in the room, we're waiting for Ken to show up. And that's okay because he's waiting for Barbie to show up. And we know in our hearts that's not the one that God would ever pick. And after I trick them into marrying me, then I'll manipulate them into being a God follower. And you, you get at the end of the day, Satan doesn't care what you put on the throne. Satan doesn't care what you, as long as you put anything besides God there. Because it's satanic. It's exactly what he did. And the truth is, some of us in the room need to, need to go, you know what, I've got, I've got stuff in my life, whether it's career or habits that I know don't honor God or relationships or finances, and to say, look, I'm going to put God back where God belongs because anything else is the plan of the enemy anything else, and he rubs it in the face of my heavenly Father and says, see, I told you they didn't love you. Some of us need to clean the throne and put God back where he belongs. Let's pray. Hey, God, we, we just got to be honest. We get fooled. See, we thought when Satan came and tried to manipulate and deceive, but we thought we would recognize it. We thought we would see the moment. We didn't think it would come wrapped in self-interest and things that felt so precious and dear to us, and sometimes even in good things. And yet, if we were honest today, we've done exactly what he did. We found something in our life we loved more than you, and we gave it a place in our life that only you should hold and God, some of us in this room today need to clear off the throne, clear off the first place in our hearts and give it back to you. Because not to do so delights the enemy. Give us courage. Help us to recognize that we've been fooled. In Jesus' precious name, amen.